All right, if you have a Bible this morning, you'll want to be in Romans chapter 12 so we can be together. If you're new to the Bible, maybe we just gave you one this morning. Uh, you can look at the table of contents and find a page number and find the Romans, the letter to the Romans. And today we're going to be back to talking about reasonableness and religion. What does it mean to be reasonable when it comes to Christianity? That's the question before us today as it was last time. What does it mean to be reasonable in our religion? Of course, typically in our culture, most people would say to be reasonable when it comes to, be re- when it comes to religion is uh, just not being extreme. As long as you're not extreme, you're reasonable in your religion. Well, the problem with that, wh- the problem with that is that uh, Jesus is extreme. <laughs> the problem with... Uh, That is, Christianity is extreme. Uh, The problem with that is Jesus isn't typical. As a matter of fact, we hear statements like this when it comes to Christianity, and they are extreme. Just listen for now. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. That is an extreme statement. That is a radical statement. It might not be that radical to you right now because you've heard it before. Maybe you've memorized it. But quoting Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it doesn't get more extreme or radical than that when it comes to religion. To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness? It doesn't get more extreme than that when it comes to religion. It doesn't get more radical than that when it comes to religion. Every religion on planet earth somehow sees the goodness of humanity, and as long as human beings try hard enough by their efforting, by their works, then God will somehow accept them. And Christianity comes along, extremely and says it's the exact opposite. Every religion on planet earth that somehow affirms a God somehow has this God if he has laws as being willing to compromise his laws. And maybe through a religious bribe, you know, sort of under the table, he's going to say, well, I know that I said this is my law, and I know that I said that you would die if you break my law, and you have broken my law, but I know that I said that, but as long as you pay me through what you do, I'll accept you. Most religions would be some sort of form of that. In one way or another, every religion would be. And here comes Christianity. Not disguised impersonators, but real, genuine Christianity. God, who is absolutely righteous, with perfectly just laws, satisfies his own righteousness. How? By taking bribes? No, then he wouldn't be righteous anymore. No, what he does is he shows his love, maintaining his justice. He himself comes here, joins the human race, obeys the law of God perfectly in our place, then dies a sinner's death, which should have never happened in one sense because he never sinned but yet he, he pays for our sins and he rises again from the dead. And if you believe in him, which means trust in him, as that verse said, depend upon him and not in yourself, God then justifies you? He declares you righteous even though you're not? Wow! You say, what religion is that? <laughs> that's Christianity, like 101. That's, that's Romans 1 to 11. That's what we've been learning. It's all over the place. God 
declares sinners, rebels, righteous, even though they're not by virtue of the righteousness of His Son. You will never find another religion like that. God is totally righteous. He doesn't compromise. People are rebels. God's not going to lower the standard. He's actually going to satisfy His own justice. And He's going to do, how about this? All of it for you. No human being would ever invent a religion that damns everyone and gives them no possibility for earning the way themselves. The religion I would invent would give me attaboys. <laughs> the religion I would invent somehow would have me being able to accomplish it myself. And Christianity stands apart radically saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. As we sang this morning. Just amazing in Romans 4, 5. Or how about Romans 3, 24? We're justified by His grace. It's unearned favor as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christianity is, is, is utterly radical because it has Christ doing everything. Everything. It's extreme. So here's the question before us today. So what's a reasonable response? If we're talking about a different religion, a reasonable response would be one that's not extreme. If we're talking about the religion of Christianity, a reasonable response we're going to see is an extreme response. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we'll see three reasonable religious responses. Give me one more R and I'll say it. <laughs> three reasonably radical responses. <laughs> To, to what Christ has done. Okay, Romans 1 to 11, what Christ has done in essence. And now, what should we do? How should we respond? And he gives us three reasonable responses. The first one is primary. The second two are supplementary. And so we'll look at those three this morning. The first reasonable response to the saving grace of God would be number one, the response of wholeheartedness. You can just summarize it in one word wholeheartedness. And we started looking at this last Sunday. We scratched the surface of it. We'll go a little deeper today, and then we'll move to number 2 and number 3. All right, verse 1, chapter 12 of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So in light of this radical religion where God justifies ungodly people based upon the work of His Son, based not upon our works, therefore, brothers, by or because of, it could be translated, in view of, the mercies of God, that's the shorthand, as I mentioned last time, for Romans 1 to 11 and all of God's saving grace in the gospel and the work of Christ to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or I think more literally as the King James, which is your reasonable service, your logical service. And what he's getting at here is wholehearted devotion. Well, religion's okay as long as it isn't extreme. But if we're talking about a religion that is extreme, that it's all of God, none of you, well, guess what? Your reasonable, your logical response is extreme. And he's saying, most certainly, you should be extreme. So extreme that he says, you present your bodies, all of you, everything that you are. Present yourselves 
to God. As one commentator said, and I like the way he put it, it is not only that we, it is not only what we can give that God demands, He demands the giver. Further extremeness is shown in that verse in verse 1, where He says this is to be a holy sacrifice. Holy as in not shared. Right? If it's, if holiness means separated, Yeah, it's separated, all right. My devotion shouldn't be, well, I'm going to give God some devotion because of His salvation. No, I'm going to give God holy devotion, H-O-L-Y, which is holy with a W. It's exclusive. It all goes to Him because He didn't give me partial salvation. He gave me extreme, full salvation if I'm a Christian. This makes the religions, religions of hours and days of devotion and weeks and months of devotion look like nothing. Biblical Christianity is saying it's all of Christ, Romans 1 to 11, therefore what's reasonable is all of Pat given in everything that he does. How about this? For the record, Christianity is not the 10% religion. Scratch that out of your mind. It's not the 10% religion. You say, but pastor, I can show you verses in the Old Testament where you're supposed to give 10%. That's right. And guess what? It's the top 10% which shows that you're wholly committed and dependent upon this God for everything else. If he's a 10% savior and he's not, then give 10% of your devotion to him. But that's not the case. If he's a 50% savior, then give him 50%. That would be reasonable. But it's all of grace. And so you give all of yourself. My whole life is an act of thanksgiving. I want to give my whole life to serve you and honor you. Christianity is not the, the religion that says, take time out for God. <laughs> How about time is for God? Everything I have is for Him to worship and serve Him because He's done everything for me. That's reasonable, that's rational, that's logical. As the Apostle Paul says in those familiar words to most of you, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the same idea. Everything. How about now we're on to something? Everything matters. Right? Now everything matters. Biblical Christianity has God doing everything. I know I'm repeating myself. But that's what preachers do. (laughs) He does everything. There's nothing left for me to do to earn his favor. It's already been earned by Jesus. But now I give him my whole life as an act of thanksgiving. Holy. My body, everything. And so now, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do all to the glory of God. Now all my money is for God. How about that? Let's do a collection. Not necessarily in that sense. Okay, I might want to give a top percentage for ministry purposes, but you know what? All of my money is for God. Whether I'm spending it on food, or I'm spending it on education, or I'm spending it on rent, or I'm spending it on you name it, a Christian worldview in response to what God has done in Christ is it's all for Him. Which, by the way, then the house is for Him. Which, by the way, the education is for Him. Which, by the way, now, no matter what I do in everything of life, it's all for Him. Because my whole life is an act of worship to Him. And now, like I said, now everything matters. Everything matters. The sacred matters. Going to church, we're supposed to do that. The secular matters. 
because everything I do in life. So whether I'm a preacher or a pediatrician, it's all for him. A deacon or a ditch digger. Here I am alliterating again. Um, let's come up with another one. <laughs> a missionary or a mathematician. You know what? What's reasonable is that your life, who you are as a saved person, would be harnessed for the exaltation of the Savior who saved you to the uttermost. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans 12, 1 and following. Our lives are worship. It's awesome. How cool is it to even stop and think about this? Is we're beyond trivial religion now where 10% matters. We are so beyond that. Biblical Christianity is radical. It calls for all of you, but you know what? Now all of you and everything that you do matters. This is great. I need to find meaning in my life. Be a Christian. <laughs> you know what? And live your life for the glory of Christ. There's meaning in life. It's awesome. It changes everything. Changes everything. I remember my dad, and I hate to speak ill of my father because I respect him in so many different ways. But I remember one time I was not doing well in school, and I got a we called them down slips, which was a down day when you got a down slip, I guess. But progress report, it wasn't so good. And I remember him telling me, and my father was not a Christian, so I shouldn't expect him to act like one. You know, there are there are three things that are important in your life, son. Number one, school. Number two, church. Religion. Number three, your sports. So remember that. <laughs> well, he was a little confused, but what we want to say, there are three things that are important to life, sons and daughters. We want to say religion and God, school, sports. How about there's one thing that's important in life, son, daughter, friend, brother, sister. You live your whole life, whether it's sports or church, or education for the glory of Christ. It's all for Him. And everything matters. And how about this? You say, that's pretty radical, man. Are they going to pass Kool-Aid out? No, we're not going to pass Kool-Aid out. We're not going to do that. But you know what? Christ is a radical Savior, and He uses the word in Romans 12.1 for logical. This is just reasonable. This is just logical. I love that. Everything matters. Not by coercion, but by reasonableness. I want my whole life to be an act of worship, not because somehow it's bad and I have to do it and it's a guilt trip. No, we've learned from Romans 1 to 11, it's all what Christ has done. Reasonable is I'm thankful and I'll harness my life for thanksgiving. Ta-da! Man, Romans is like the easiest book in the Bible, don't you think? Now, I'm shaving my hair now, but I think by the time we're done with Romans, I will lose all of it because it's not that easy. But in one sense, it is easy. Christianity is easy to understand in one sense. All right, let's move on. That was all review. That was fun. <laughs> Number two, 
elaborating on number one. Really, the, the, the linchpin is number one. It's verse one, but he's going to elaborate on that. But really, we need to have number one locked in our minds. Number two, a second reasonable response to the saving mercies of God in Christ, the response of nonconformity. The response of non-conformity. We need to be non-conformists if we're a Christian, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And look what it says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Before we get into what it means, let me talk about what it doesn't. I don't think, well, what I don't think it means. Do not be conformed to this world. If I had a dollar for every angry fundamentalist preacher or right-wing evangelical legalist, for every time the sermon was used as a springboard for them to talk about social things that they don't like, preferences and style, I would buy each of you a Ferrari. Okay, I mean, this is a popular passage. Somebody would say, that passage can preach. <laughs> right? This passage is used over and over and over again because it says right there, and I believe the Bible, do not be conformed to this world. And that's why i got to tell you that you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't chew or go with girls that do. Right? <laughs> Say amen, somebody. You know, we can really get into it. And this passage is used again and again and again as a springboard to jump into legalism and to get you to stop doing things that the Bible doesn't forbid, but I don't like you doing. It's used a lot. What I want to try to encourage you to do today is interpret this passage in light of Romans. So in one sense, this is a really hard passage to preach because I've heard so many sermons like that that I read this verse that way. And you go, all right, what can I start listing? <laughs> right? Don't go to movies. Right? Don't, don't, don't drink alcohol. In the Bible it says don't get drunk with grape juice. Are you, you know? Don't do all these things. Well, there, there isn't anything in there. So I've got to now base my sermon and my interpretation of this passage on my creative abilities, which is dangerous. So what is he saying? What is he getting at? Do not be conformed to this world. I'm not making fun of the Bible verse. I'm making fun of what we do with it so often. Let's start by translating it a little bit more literally, as your marginal note might say, as it does in the Bible I'm preaching from, in the translation I'm preaching from. It says, do not be conformed to this world, marginal note, do not be conformed to this I own, do not be conformed to this age. Now that still doesn't tell us what he's getting at, but man, that's a sermon spoiler. Because that doesn't quite sound as good. I've got to tell you, don't be conformed to this age. It just doesn't have the ring to it. I want to talk about this world out there going to hell. And you are too if you smoke. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say that. Stop. What is he getting at? What I'm going to suggest to you and encourage you to do is turn to Romans 1. Don't take my word for this. I realize we only have a limited amount of time, so in, in a sense you have to, but be like those Bereans in the book of Acts that examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. But what you see in Romans 12, 1 and 2 are words that are used, language that is used, concepts that are used, and guess where else they're used? 
They're used in Romans 1. Unmistakably, Romans 1 and Romans 12 talk about worship. They talk about our bodies. They talk about God's will or His decrees. And they both talk about our minds. What does Paul mean when he says, do not be conformed to this age? Well, Romans 1 has got to give us a huge hint to what he's getting at. And I'm going to tell you right now before we read the verses. If you read Romans 1, 1 to 17 is just introduction. But then he really starts getting into his argument, Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter. And if you had to summarize what Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter is about, in one word, it's about idolatry. It's about idolatry. Now, whether or not we use that word or not, it's all about me saying, well, I know, God, you say that you're this, but I say that you're something else. I know, God, you, should, you tell me I'm supposed to live like this, but I'm going to live however I want to live. So I've got idolatry and idolatrous living. That's what Romans 1 is about. Paul is now using the same verbiage in Romans 12, 1 and 2 when he says, do not be conformed to this age. What I'm going to suggest to you, and I think we're on the safest ground, not a springboard, I think we're on the safest ground interpreting the Bible in its context with the Bible itself if we say, do not be conformed to this age of idolatry. You're a Christian now. You're not an idolater anymore like you used to be. You've been saved from that. And so don't be pressed into that mold of wrong thinking about God where you sit in judgment about God and you sit in judgment about God and what He says is right and what is wrong. I think that's what he's getting at. And now we're on safe ground. Let's go ahead and look at Romans 1 and see so you don't have to take my word for it. It says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is the truth in this context, the truth about God. You know, you were under the wrath of God. You were under the anger of God. And that wrath and anger from God, the wrath, and wrath of God, was upon you because you suppressed the truth, the truth about God. You were saying, well, I know God says that's who He is, but I say something else. You're not under the wrath of God anymore. We've learned in Romans that the wrath of God has been propitiated. It's been satisfied. Romans 3, and now you're different. You belong to Him by virtue of what Christ has done. And so when He says, don't be conformed to this world, this age, it's this age of idolatry, I would take it, based upon the similarities of language. Verse 19, He talks about, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them, visible attributes, so on and so forth. Verse 21, for the sake of time, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. We're dealing with the mind here in our verse pretty soon, pretty soon. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise in relationship to who God is. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28 then talks about idolatrous living. Or verse 26, excuse me, dishonorable passions. And he talks about all these different kinds of sinful actions which are idolatrous kinds of actions. What I'm getting at is I think that's how we should interpret Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this age. What kind of age is it? It's an age of idolatrous, idolatrous thinking and idolatrous living. We come to that conclusion because of so many of the words that are the same. And it makes sense too. It starts out with sin in Romans 1, bringing the wrath of God. 
The wrath of God has been appeased. And now how should we live? Romans 12, 2. We should live no longer in conformity to this age, this age of idolatry. I'm no longer being like everyone around, else around me on television shows who say, well, to me, God is. Well, that's all fine and good, but you know what? I think God is. The kind of God I believe in is this kind of God. Well, thank you for telling us about yourself. We're trying to learn about God, though. Right? And we might not call it idolatry, but when we talk like that, we are revealing that the God we worship is the God of the mirror. Because the God I want to believe in, the God I believe in, to me God is, and it's just an Old Testament word, and the Old Testament word is idolatry. Don't be, don't be conformed to that. Don't, don't, don't be like that anymore. Oh, and by the way, also when it comes to idolatrous living, well, God says, here's my will for a relationship. Well, you know, here's how I feel about relationships. <laughs> God says, this is what a relationship between a man and a woman should be like. Well, you know what? Uh, because of my feelings and the way I think and my education, I'm going to do it differently. Self-worship, self-worship, self-worship. And he's saying, now that you're a Christian, that's the kind of stuff that brought the wrath of God, the orge of God. It's an ugly word. You're not under the wrath of God anymore. And so don't be conformed to this age, this idolatrous age that you watch on television or you hear in small groups called Bible studies that are self-studies, self-revelation sometimes. Don't do that. You say, that's not very reasonable. You're telling people what they should believe. Well, yeah! <laughs> that's reasonable if it's what's true. Don't be conformed to that. And that's reasonable. God has satisfied His own wrath. How about this? In Galatians 1.4, you can just write it down if you'd like. Jesus, who gave Himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil I own. To deliver us from the present evil age. The idolatrous age, according to the will of God our Father. Christ Died to deliver us from that. So, so, so it's a good time to stop acting like he didn't if you're a Christian. Stop talking like that. Stop giving autobiography and calling it theology. Right? We're delivered from that. Hopefully when somebody sees my life and they say, you know what, I know how Pat used to talk. And he used to, even when he talked about religion, he told a lot about himself. You know what? That's not how it is anymore. And I know how Pat used to live. And he told us by his living a lot about the God he believed in. And that God looked a lot like the mirror Pat looks in. Because he lived however he wanted to live. It's idolatrous living. Well, this wasn't maybe as flashy as a good legalistic sermon telling you what you should and shouldn't do in the details of all your Christian freedoms. But in the long run, I think this is better. I could have stood up here and said, all right, I'm going to tell you what I think you shouldn't do. These aren't biblical things, but in the Greek it means... <laughs> okay, Could have gone there. 
I just think we should be really careful to not launch into something that's not even talked about in Romans. If it's sin, call it sin. But if it's not, let's not say, that's worldliness. Even though the Bible never defines it that way. But it's what I don't like because these are social sins in evangelicalism. See, if we went down that road, guess what we wouldn't have talked about? The elephant in the room, which is idolatry. You want to know the biggest issue of all issues? It's that. It's that. Don't be conformed to this age that is literally hell-bent on saying, to me, God is, and I think, and I want God to be. Don't do that. You know who God is now. He saved you from His own wrath. Don't talk like that anymore. That's what He's saying. That's what He's getting at. Wow, okay. That addresses the real issue. That keeps us from trivialities. Now, if you do want to know what kind of music I don't think you should listen to, um, just ask me. It's country. I'm kidding. (laughs) See, that kind of thing never ends. Preferences never end. It just never ends. And God is not looking for that. He's looking for you to stop being an idolater. I don't think God really cares a whole lot about style. If he would have, he would have talked about it in the Bible. And we focus on the gray issues and build huge doctrines on them and preach long sermons about them. And we ignore the black and white elephants in the room. Let's not do that. Okay, let's move on to a complement to this, and that's the positive side. Sometimes Bible commentators and theologians say, actually, he's talking about the same thing, it's just the other side of the same coin, and I think that's probably a good way to look at this. Here's the positive side to number two, and that's number three, but really we're trying to support number one, the third reasonable response to the saving mercies of God. So we're not to be conformed, we're to be all in, if you will. And number three, the response of transformation. Transformation. Look at verse two where it says, but be transformed metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis. We understand that. But be transformed. Don't be conformed, jammed into the old mold, the idolatrous mode, but instead be transformed. And how does that happen? He says it right there. By the renewal of your mind. There's the positive side. The renewal of your mind. And again, I'll take you back to Romans 1 and say there's where he was talking about the mind. The idolatrous mind. But then we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Romans 1, 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking or their speculations, as one translation says, or King James' imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, that's what our mind used to do. We just got creative when it comes to who we thought God was. Foolish imaginations, speculations. And he's saying, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The mind that used to be used for bad is now used for good. Good thinking about God, first and foremost. Good good thinking about what God's will is. You might just want to make a marginal note also regarding this renewal of our minds. The one other place that the, the Greek word is used in all seriousness for renewal uh, is in Titus 
In Titus 3.5, the same word is used one other place, and it's here. And it's about the Holy Spirit's work of renewing our minds when we're saved by believing the gospel. Or actually, it's tied to regeneration. Listen to Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done in, done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm going to suggest to you is even this here is the work of God. Be transformed. How does that happen? By the renewal of your mind. And, and how did the renewal of my mind happen? My mind was in the gutter. My mind was perversed, harnessed at defaming God in the name of what I think. And now, by, the virtue of the, by virtue of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I've got a renewed mind. I've got a renewed mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now I've got a renewed, renewed mind, and my life is to be transformed. It's to be uh, in metamorphosis. I'm becoming more and more like Christ now that I have a transformed mind. I'm not long, no longer using my mind to somehow blaspheme God in the name of God. Now I've been given a, uh, a renewed mind by the power of the Spirit. And then he says, be transformed by that renewal of your mind. Sounds a lot like God's getting the credit for that too. I think we're on to something. Total commitment out of thanksgiving. That's reasonable. No longer in the mold of the age around you. That's reasonable. And now, with a renewed mind, I'm actually being transformed in my thinking about who God is. That's reasonable too. To no longer be thinking these stray, self-centered thoughts about God but actually to have these thoughts be honoring to him that are true and right. That's what he's going to get to in verse 2 as we continue on. In verse 2, he goes on to say that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I hope you've been thinking so far. I hope you haven't been letting go and letting God during the sermon. <laughs> okay? It actually even emphasized the mind. So uh, I hope you've been doing that. But now I'm going to ask you to really, really engage your mind. So, you know, on the count of three, pinch your neighbor. Um, <laughs> time to wake up and really try to... You've got to think through this one. And in one sense, I don't like to be this kind of preacher. I like it when it's just so utterly clear right there in the English text that um, not, a, not a lot of work is necessary. I want to do the work in the study so I don't have to do any work up here in one sense. But I think there's a better way to translate this. It's more literal that's going to help us understand it. Now, before we get to that, and you're going to have to, again, engage your mind maybe a little more than normal, but when we first read that verse, okay, by testing you may discern what, the will of, uh, what is the will of God. I mean, that's a Bible verse for sure, and it sounds good. But again, we, we don't really, I don't really know what it means. I mean, I, I could sort of run off on a tangent and say, yep, I need to test everything by my renewed mind. That's true, um, so that I can discern everything by my renewed mind um, and figure out what is and isn't the will of God. That's all true. I just think there's even a better way, according to the flow of the context, based upon a Greek word as well, to take it. So I'm asking a lot of you, but uh, let's do a little interpretive exercise here. I think it will make sense of the greater context if we do that. First of all, please identify that word in verse 2. 
Testing. Then also identify that word discern, that by testing you may discern. What I did in my Bible is I underlined both of those words and connected them together with an arrow at the bottom of the page. And I wrote one single word because it's actually only one Greek word. It could be translated this way. It's a fine translation, but based upon the context, I think we should go ahead and take the one Greek word that's not separated into two English words. Let's take the one Greek word and translate it into one English word. With me so far? If not, this is a Bible. Okay, got that so far? All right. It'll be really simple here. Let's just translate what the ESV people have done in two words, and actually even more than that, but those two main words, and let's just take the one Greek word and and translate it into one word, and that word would be approve or approving. And then let's reread the verse. Transformed, renewing of your mind, that approving or approving what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think it's the best way to take that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens by the power of the Spirit. And then we keep reading, approving what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's where I'm going, based upon the flow of things. Gospel saves. Holy Spirit renews our minds. We used to have minds that were conformed to idolatrous thinking. We've been freed from that. And now our transformed minds are at a place where we're not idolatrous in our thinking. We are actually approving the will of God. The flow of thought, therefore, what I'm suggesting to you in our passage, if we translate it as it can be translated, approving what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, is this. We've got transformed minds now. We used to have idolatrous minds. We have transformed minds. And so now what do we do? We approve the will of God. We approve the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, I'm not where I used to be when I wasn't a Christian. God would say one thing and I would say, well, I don't think so. God would reveal Himself as righteous and I would say, ah, you know, I think God grades on a curve. See, that was the conformity to this age. But you know what happens now? I've got a new mind and now, you know what I say when God says something? Yeah. I agree. I'm I'm approving the will of God. I'm agreeing with God about what God says, which is, you know, pretty rational. And when God says something is, keep looking at the text in this sense, when God says something is good, now I say, unlike before, I say, yeah, it's good. And when God says, unlike before, uh, when, when God says it's acceptable, unlike before, I say, it's acceptable. And when God says something is perfect or whole or complete, unlike before, now I say, yeah, it is. I'm no longer bent on dethroning God and His will, I'm embracing God and saying, I couldn't agree more. I think that's where He's going with all of this. We're now on the right team. We're not doing battle with God like Romans 1. We're now on the same team. We belong to Him. We've been reconciled to Him. And when God speaks, we say, I agree. And God says, all right, here's what I expect for a relationship between a man and a woman. 
Yeah? I think that is God's will. Because it is. It's rational. And I think that's good, and I think that's acceptable, and I think that's perfect. And here's what I, God says, here's what's not my will for a man and a woman. Now I'm in a place where I'm not arguing. I'm saying, you know what? I think that's God's will, because it is. And you know what? I think that's good, and I think that's acceptable, and I think that's perfect. Radical change. Radical Savior saving us from idolatry, saving us from ourselves, saving us from the just consequence of idolatry, saving us from what we see in Romans 1, and now we're no longer conformed. Now we want to worship Him with our whole life. We're no longer conformed to the way the world thinks about it, the way I used to think about it, the way maybe you used to think about it. And now we're back to square one on the right team saying what God says goes. Not because it's somehow bad. It's actually good and it's right. We see things differently. We have a renewed mind, a transformed, Holy Spirit transformed mind, and it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Here's what I wrote down for my own notes. Because of the transformation of the gospel, you are no longer disapproving of God and His will, Romans 1, right? But are agreeing with Him. It's transformation. I used to sit in judgment of God. I tried to dethrone God by my immorality and by my wrong thinking. Both would be idolatrous. And now I'm saying, you know what? I'm on the same side. I agree. And now I'm ready to do Romans 12 in service, Romans 13, Romans 14, Romans 15, Romans 16, and I'm not going to be saying, well, who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Or, oh, yeah, i got to do these things to earn God's favor. Oh, what a cross I have to bear. No. He saved you by everything that He's done, and now it's reasonable to want to do what He says and treat Him like He's God. And then be in agreement with his plan. And so when he says, serve one another, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's not, well, who do you think you are telling me what to do? That's a good idea. That, that's good and acceptable and perfect. Not that he needs our approval, but now we're saying, you know what, we totally agree. Um, chapter 13, um, obey the government. Well, who do you think? That's a good idea, God. Oh, that, that's good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. <laughs> right? Uh, Romans 13, pay your taxes. Who do you think? That's a good idea, God. That's what you say in your word, so I agree with your will. And um, that's good and acceptable and, and perfect. Help me out here. <laughs> Dealing with weaker Christians. Well, they ought to grow up. <laughs> well... Actually, you need to be patient with them and not be self-centered. Um, oh, that's a good idea, God. I shouldn't be self-centered. I am, but God, that's a good idea, so help me. And so now we're moving on to works. Why do we do what we do? Because God says we should do what He says, and it's actually what's best. And we're doing out of thanksgiving anyway. This is just a basic understanding that is a profound and radical understanding of how things work. 
He does it all, and he says, I want you to act reasonably. What's reasonable? You give him your all in thanksgiving, and you know what? You are no longer smashed into the mold of this idolatrous, hell-bent world, and actually you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind, and now you can actually come to the place and say, I think God is God. And in a Bible study that uh, you're attending and somebody says, well, to me, God is, you can actually not act like you've been conformed to this age. And you can say, well, actually, God is. Not based upon my authority, but based upon what he said about himself. And you know what else? And I think it's good that God is sovereign. And I think it's acceptable. Shall we share? (laughs) And I think it's perfect that he's sovereign. And you can maybe nudge your professing Christian friend and say, you know what? That's how we used to think when we were under the wrath of God and bondage to idolatry. And our theology was based upon autobiography. You know what? If you've been freed from your sin, it's now time to say, God, I pretty much think you're God. And I'm good with it. (laughs) Again, not that he's looking for our approval. But it changes things radically. It really does. Because he's a radical savior who saves us from such bondage. Because it's bondage. It's bondage to believe in a false God that you've created in your own image according to your own liking, likeness. And we're just freed from it for the glory of Christ. So I'm looking forward to serving because God says so. We're going to learn about that. Obeying the government because God says so. <laughs> Paying my... Let's pray. <laughs> We're going to do these things because He saved us and He's wise and He's right. So let's, in all seriousness, pray. Father, thank You for our time this morning and that we've been able to look at these things. And Lord, I do pray for those who are here that they would want to be like Bereans, um, that we would examine these things to see whether they are so. But certainly, God, help us to be so amazed by the glory of Christ in the Gospel and His grace that we would see what's reasonable, that we would respond with our lives. Thank you for freeing us from the bondage of idolatry. Thank you for giving us a new mind through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we now can be transformed and things can be different. As we now start to look at things that we must do, help us to go back again and again and again to be reminded why we must do these things because it's our privilege and it's our honor to now see them as true and right and glorifying to Christ because of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.